Hello, readers. Welcome to 20 Questions with Your Favorite Author. I'm Kelly Lynn Colby, Editorial Director at Curse Dragon Ship Publishing. And tonight, for episode 14, we have a special guest, Kevin J. Anderson, international best-selling author of space opera and steampunk and fantasy and, well, everything. If he's not your favorite author now, he will be. I said it fast. I'm so excited to have you on, Kevin. Thank you for agreeing to be here. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm holed up in a cabin out in the middle of the mountains with like two bits per second bandwidth on my internet. So that's why you're going to be seeing me a little bit grainy um, when there are long, long uh, in, in contemplative pauses. It's not because I'm thinking of my answer. It's because there's that much of a signal delay. But I'll be I'll be here. I'm I'm editing the manuscript of the newest Dune book, The Lady of Caladan, and um, kind of here where I can concentrate and build a fire in the wood-burning fireplace and do what writers love to do for a vacation. I work from dawn to midnight, and that's just the thing that you do when you when you get a chance to. <laughs> Sad, I know, but. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds fun to me. I keep saying I want to get away and just write, please. Let's see. So, Kevin, I know this is your first time on this podcast. In any podcast, you've never done a podcast. Okay, he's done a lot of podcasts. Um, but what we have tonight is we we have questions, and we'll take questions from the audience. So, audience members, if you have your questions, please post them in the chat, and I'll make sure to read them to Kevin. Um, so put them in there. We'll have good. Oh, Helen's on. You should know Helen too from Superstars. Helen Savore. Helen uh, Savore, sure. So, um, oh, Kevin Petway's on too. So, let's see. Yep. Hi, other Kevin. We have lots of Kevins. A plethora of Kevins is called what? Mm, a Kevinopia? I was just going with a critical mass a of Kevin. A murder of Kevin? A murder of Kevin's? Well, maybe if, like, you know, all of the wives of the Kevins were together, we might name them that. But, you know. Let's not suggest that. <laughs> we'll have to think of another title. Uh, Kevin Cade. Critical Kevins. There might be a few writers in the audience. They have lots of suggestions. Let's see, Kevin, for your first questions I have for you, your formal question, yeah, and sorry about the lag, like he said, he is far away, so give us a minute as we're trying to not talk over each other and be polite, which is very hard for me. You know I like to talk over people. So the very first question is one I know you've probably gotten two trillion times in your lifetime, so I'm wondering if you have a creative answer for it. And that question is, where do you get your ideas? You say that. Well, one of the, you know, for the longest time, I would just sort of get like surly and snarky when people would ask me that question. I would just be be like sarcastic and say, well, I have a monthly subscription service and I get 10 every month that's mailed to me and you got to pay every year or they stop your subscription. And, you know, I got the I got the expanded subscription because I'm prolific. So I get more ideas that way. And then I, I just sort of would roll my eyes and. 
Rebecca, my wife, took me. You know, you may have heard that question a million times, but it's really the first time they've ever asked it, and they genuinely want to know the answer. And I, what I think the real answer that I've had is is to kind of turn it around and, and look at look at the people and just go, how do the rest of you stop the ideas from coming? Because it's never been a um, where do I get the ideas? It's where do I find the time to do something with the 10 notebooks of ideas that I've jotted down that I'll never get around to writing. And I, I think it's a, it's a, um, you know, like with, with plants and gardening, if you don't harvest something, it won't grow back. And because I've spent so much time looking for ideas and harvesting ideas and writing stuff, it's almost like when you, when you prune a plant and then it grows different branches and keeps going. So my brain is sort of hardwired to reset. It's like see something on the news and go, oh, it would make a neat story. Or, you know, just, just today somebody sent me an idea saying, here's this idea I have. Can you write it as a novel? I won't know. But also, <laughs> it, it's little, and, and, but it was just this little, well, I, let me tell you, um, I technical writer for many years for a big research lab. That's how I paid my bills when I was getting my start as a writer. And after I published a couple of books, then I became sort of known as I'm the science fiction writer guy that's at that's at the workplace. And this guy came up to me and he like he was really intense and and he said, "Okay, I've got this idea for you, and it's going to make a great novel, and it's the best idea I've ever had, and I've just got to tell you this idea." And I'm I'm already kind of doing the no 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 I don't want you to tell me the idea and he leans to me like he's telling me the secret of the universe and he says here's my idea it's the future and every store is Sears and I'm <laughs> like yes and I just thought okay you're, you're not wired for this and how it's working now there are other people that'll look outside and they'll like they're innate photographers. They'll look at something and go, "Oh, that that would be a perfect picture." Or or um, people that maybe taste something and go, "I know instantly." Well, my brain is on the instantly processing ideas and how do I convert them into so there. That's where I get my, my ideas. Constantly questioning the universe. I like that. That's a good place to get your ideas. Let's see. We have a question from the audience already. Kevin Petway wants to know, how do you write when your fingers are frozen on top of a mountain in a snowstorm? With the recorder. So your fingers are just frozen on record? Something like that. Well, I mean, I, I do a lot of my writing. playing and stuff and if it'll show up but i've got it right here because i was using this this is my olympus ds 9300 uh professional level digital recorder and i have written on this particular device i've probably written 20 23 novels something like that i'll just go out and i'll be dictating and i love hiking i keep myself if that was this afternoon, I'm, I'm here at the cabin in the mountains, and the road is kind of snowy. And I 
I didn't go anywhere, but I just rotated new, um, like added scenes for the book, just because my my it's like my legs, my moving and creativity are linked in my brain. That if I'm sitting there staring at the screen, it's hard to get the words rolling. Mm-hmm. But if I'm walking, it enters a different gear. And uh, even if I'm just like writing one of my newsletters or something like that, I'll often go out for a walk, even if it's only 15 minutes, just because it's easier for me to make the words come out verbally than just typing them that it's that's the way i've trained myself i mean i have i have climbed all kinds of 14 things and i'll dictate while i'm going up um i had my my typist i have a human who transcribes them i know other people can use like voice recognition and stuff but i i find to be faulty when you're writing like dune books with seven million different vocabulary a typist said that when i'm mountain climbing and dictating she says it's like transcribing an obscene phone call because it's <gasps> just a bunch of panting but i get my words out <laughs> and she doesn't put a lot of so ellipses Kelly, in there my end, you just froze <laughs> yeah that's because you froze a little bit but it's okay it I'm caught not up hearing no anything from you uh, <laughs> kevin colby i don't know if you can still hear me yeah, we got you, I Kevin. Can. Can you You're actually me? coming in can really good. Freeze? It went one-sided. <laughs> it's hilarious. We can hear him great. Oh, actually, that's pretty nice, man. It's not even pixelated right now. And I think we just lost him. We lost him, and it looks beautiful. That's so sad. I know. And actually, the audio got really good. Right? We could hear him clearly, and now he went away. It, yeah. I know. They got real Hold on, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to call him back. So thank you, audience, for being patient. Let's see. Why well, show him is still being on here, Kevin? Oh, there he hung up. Yeah. Let's see. I will call him again. Ed. <laughs> well, well played, subject. Uh, he says we flew too close <laughs> to the HD and we got burned. We gotta love him. I'm back now. I, just, I turned I turned my video off so that we get a little bit better bandwidth. And I'm sure I said the absolute most profound frozen, or you were frozen, whichever way you look at it. So, recap what I was talking about. Was it dictating? I don't know what I ended with. You took well. I think you you pretty much covered it because you talked about you know dictating to a real human and all that, and the audience laughed at that. But it was funny because I want you to know that right before you froze, the picture looked great. Like it wasn't pixelated at all. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> it was like, but we can see That's you. <laughs> Audio was good. Was picture was good. You couldn't see or hear us. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I don't know what the uh, odds are. All right. So. No, that was a so, great question. Uh, so that's how you you're every single time, but we yeah. You're awesome, dude. You got this. Like I said, we're casual. So here, I'm gonna ask you a question about um Dune, because there's so much excitement with the new Dune movie. And all of us fans have been longing for more stories. And you just released the Dune, the Duke of Caledon by you and Brian Herbert. Um, which takes place just before the events in the original Dune novel. So why did you choose this time period, and what stories do you have planned next? Okay. Well, like I mentioned, I'm doing the second book in the trilogy right now, The Lady of Caladan, and that will come out on September 21st. Um, 
which was bumped up like two months from the publisher. And they, we haven't even turned in the book yet. And you're publishing it in September. So that'll be fun. We're kind of in the final. I mean, it's written. We're in the final line editing, polishing stuff. Um, so this whole trilogy uh, and the third book, The Heir of Caladan, will come um, like like the H-E-I-R of Caladan will come out probably a year afterward. Um, and these three books will all lead up right to where Dune starts. So the ending of our trilogy will be, you know, very close to the beginning of, of Dune. Um, so we've done about 15 novels in the Dune universe covering all different parts of the time period from 10,000 years before Dune to like five or 6,000 years after Dune and covering all sorts of different storylines. And we we had a break of like five years before we came back with the Duke of Caledon. We kind of recharged our creative batteries and stuff. There were lots of different stories that we could tell, but we were focusing on like the, the big movie and we've got a bunch of graphic novels and monthly comics and there's games and all kinds of um, big projects that we're working on. But with the all the buildup, uh, we wanted to go back and, and finally get back to writing novels again. And we had, you know, one of the ideas that we've wanted to play with is to even go back before the Butler and Jihad period, like the origin of of that whole thinking machines and how they take over. But we realized that with the Dune movie and all the additional exposure, we're getting a lot of new readers. A lot of people have maybe read Frank's original book, but not anything else. We understood we wanted to write a trilogy that what was user friendly even to would, would jump into it but we wanted something for the people who maybe hadn't read any other books and like for an example if you're uh, if you're a star trek fan i mean picard is a great show but that would not be the first show i would tell a person to watch after they've seen a couple of episodes of classic trek specific you got to really be in the star trek to know all the background in the picard show right similarly we didn't want to do like a very esoteric story in the dune history line that only dune fans who were completely up to speed would go so we tried we thought we wanted to do something with the familiar characters with duke leto with paul with duncan idaho and gurney halleck is that the whole setup in dune where you've got this relatively small noble house, House Atreides, that's living on, uh, that's ruling one planet, and suddenly they're kind of tricked into being the rulers of Arrakis, the, the spice planet, one of the most powerful holdings in the entire Imperium. Well, how does that happen? How do they get that gig? And and what all political machinations led up to that? And um, and how did Paul kind of get prepared for all this stuff that that he's going to be going through and doing? So we, I, I have to say that Duke Plato, a favorite character in all here, so getting the chance to spend another couple of books um, dealing with him and getting inside his head was a real treat. So, so there's the rationale for that. That's fantastic. Good choice. Lots of lessons for all of us there. Well, I quite enjoyed it. And you're right about the new fans. Like my daughter's excited for the first time about anything Dune. So I can't wait till she actually gets to see the universe. Um, 
Let's see. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Well, probably not Houston right now. It sounds pretty cold and the power keeps going out right there. But um, mm -hmm. let's see. I mean, I I live in Colorado now. This is kind of like my my dream home. I love the mountains. I, I love being able to hike here. Um, I, I I even like the weather. I, I grew up in Wisconsin and I hated winter because it's gray and snowy and cold and miserable for half the year. And then the mosquitoes mm -hmm. come out. So it, it's not I thought I didn't mm -hmm. like winter. But in Colorado, winter is like a Christmas card. I mean, it, it's blue skies and bright snow on the mountains and and it's a it's dry so that the snow kind of goes away quickly. And I really do like like uh, Colorado a great deal. So I've been here 24 years. I'm very happy with it. Um, I also really, really love Utah. I love the Utah desert, Canyonlands and Arches and um, Capitol Reef. That's kind of like my spirit home. I love going there as often as I can. That's and I, I think I'm going to, I figured out how to do it safely. Like next month, I'm going to find like an empty house that nobody's lived in for months and then you can like rent it. So I'll go there, I'll bring all my food. So even in COVID, I can go and, and stay in a house in like Moab, Utah, and then go hiking in the Canyonlands all day long and come back and cook my dinner. So I'll be <laughs> a vacation without without risk other than of course, falling down a, a slot canyon and getting trapped and having to cut off my arm because it's caught in a boulder. And that, that was somebody else, not me. Um, <laughs> And and if I let's not talk politics, but if for some reason I ever decided I've had it, I'm leaving the United States, mm -hmm. um, Australia and New Zealand, I really fell in love with. I've, I've traveled to many different countries. I counted them once, maybe 40 different countries I've been to. Uh, Australia and New Zealand really feel like like home. They feel like a place that I could settle in and be uh, be comfortable in. So um so but there are three answers to one question. But everything in Australia wants to kill you. Well, yes. It's very dangerous. So here. what's the problem? Oh, it terrifies me. Australia okay. scares me. Can't do it. Saltwater crocodiles, spiders the size of your head. Um, and those are the harmless ones. And then <laughs> little tiny spiders that kill you. Like they have the anti-venom in their stores. I, I, just, I just can't yeah. even... Pollen that gets in your eyeball and pokes it out. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not that adventurous. Think of it as inspiration. Inspiration. It's assuming I survive long enough to write any of it down, maybe that would work. Yeah, it's crazy. But someday we'll visit there someday. I'll just have to wear armor or something. Let's see. All right. Next question. More questions? Is that what we're here for? Let's see. If you can remember, because I know it was eons ago, why did you start writing? Wow. I, I wanted to be a writer since I was five years old because I was watching. Um, I mean, really, I, I didn't even know how to write then. I was drawing pictures and telling stories out loud. So I really kind of had the bug of being a writer since. Ever. And, you know, when, when you're a little kid, it's like you want to be a fireman when you grow up or you want to be a scientist or an astronaut or or all kinds of things. And I was just sort of programmed from the beginning that I wanted to write and tell stories. 
And this is odd because I was living in small town Wisconsin, which is not like the most, uh, it's not like, like Berkeley or Taos or something where everybody wants you to find your inner art. I thought I was weird for reading whatsoever, not even wanting to write. Uh, my parents were both um, like my dad was a banker. My mom was an accountant. They were both like very solid business people. So it was I was a changeling, I guess. It was just some weird because <laughs> I was in the wrong place and in the wrong family. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with my family, but but this was not like I didn't grow up in an artistic bohemian family where I was encouraged to be a writer every step of the way. This was something I did by myself and that's what I wanted to do and in fact I remember uh, I think I was 11 or 12 years old that for Christmas one year my parents got me a subscription to Writer's Digest and it was like the coolest present ever and um, wait how old were you everything in my 11 I think (laughs) wow that's pretty impressive so they might not have shared the creative way you thought, but they sure they certainly encouraged you. That's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, and I I mean I did they they weren't unsupportive. They were just a little, I think, mystified. Like, why is he just typing all the time? And why don't you go out and throw baseballs around instead of um well, and I what I've been doing, because I'm here in the cabin, and it's tedious work all day long, just keying in all these handwritten corrections that Rebecca's made on my manuscript. So I've got a little DVD player, and I've got a collection of like five or six old 1950s B movies, the giant tarantula movie and the monolith monsters and the mole people and the incredible shrinking man. So I've just been watching these and kind of remembering how much I loved them as a as a kid. And I, again, this is small town, Wisconsin. We, we were living like, um, near Racine and our, our rate, our, our TV stations were either the Milwaukee stations or the Chicago station and the Chicago station. You had to go up on the roof and turn the big TV antenna. So it pointed the right way. So you could get this fuzzy picture of the, of the Chicago station. And every Saturday afternoon, the Chicago Independent Station played sci-fi cinema, and they played like, like invaders from from uh, Invasion of the Saucer Men and the Giant Geek. And every Saturday, that was like my thing. Saturday afternoon to get to watch one of these monster movies. And I remember being so mad at my dad because it was they had the Attack of the Giant Leeches on. I've been looking forward to watching that movie for all week, and. My dad got mad and he said, you're sitting in the house all day long. Go outside and play like a normal kid. And I'm like, I'm missing a deck of the giant leeches, which like win my case very much. by So I had to miss that movie. I had to go out and just throw a baseball at my sister or something like that. And I, oh, I just, lame. I was a changeling, I guess. It was, that was, was not, not what I wanted to do. I was, I was being inspired. I mean, I, what would I do if I ever met a giant leech? I mean, now I didn't know how to deal with them, but oh well, I, I survived. I hear Australia has giant leeches. Uh, see, I'm telling you, that place is horrible. I don't even know if they do, but I bet they do. Can't do it. Nope. All their mammals have pockets. No, I just can't do it. Nope. Mm-mm. Um. Let's see. What project that's in progress or not started are you most excited about? I am just starting to gear. See, to me, the the gearing up part is 
the most exciting part when I'm just when I have like the idea and I'm working up the outline and I've got like a whole bunch of bullet points. This could happen and that could happen and I'm I'm arranging it. And this is one that I, I've literally I mean, really literally put off for the past year, but I've been kind of dabbling with it for a couple of years before that. This is the third book that Neil Peart and I planned together. It was it's called Clockwork Destiny. Uh, Neil and I wrote two books together, Clockwork Angels, well, two uh, steampunk books, Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives. And uh, he he died a year ago, a little more than a year ago. And during his last years, we had been plotting this third one, and we had a bunch of notes and ideas, and we knew what the story was going to be. And I kept them all in a file, but but after he passed away, it was just I, I had to lock that away. I couldn't do anything with it for uh, for a long time. But I'm now um, to the I, I have pages and pages of the notes. I've fleshed out the outline, and I've got like all the storylines are in my head, and I know where it all goes. And and I just um, I, I need to spend some time just kind of um, what we used to do in the old analog days is I would I would take a bunch of multicolored index cards like you know, yellow cards for this character and blue cards for this character and and I'd write like chapter ideas on them and I would I would spread them out on the floor and kind of move them around so I could see the structure of the book. Mm -hmm. Now I do that on screen with with just bullet points moving them around. And I'm I'm at that point in Clockwork Destiny. I've got basically all of the chapters as bullet points. I just don't know what order they all go in and how they all fit together. And but I know what all the story is. I know what happens and and uh, what some of the great stuff is. And right, I just finished re-listening to the audiobook of Clockwork Angels, uh, which Neil Peart reads. He's the audio narrator. So it was. It I, it was hard to listen to that all the way through, mm -hmm. and then right now I'm listening mm -hmm. to Clockwork Lives, which is the sequel to it, and the, the that's just really, uh, you know, I, I've written so many books, and I don't usually spend any time rereading this stuff because by the time it's published, I've read it twelve times and I'm sick of it, and I just don't ever want to look at it again. But this has now been uh, uh, twenty. Six years, I think, since Clockwork Lives, and I'm revisiting it, and it, it's kind of cool because I'm listening to it. I'm going, well, that was really good. I did a good job there, and and it it's nice it's nice to hear that rather than yeah, how did I ever publish that? So, um, I'm I'm very pleased about it, and that is the one that I'm most excited about. I'm uh, like I said, I'm at the very tail end of Lady of Caladan. Uh, we're going to, uh, by March 1st, I should be delivering, which will be the production manuscript. That's the one that we send off to uh, typesetting and stuff. And nice. then I'll have to proofread it again. And I, I mean, nice. this is, I think, the eighth or ninth draft. So I know you guys are all excited for it. I've read it eight or nine times, and I'm, just, I'm ready to go on to Clockwork <laughs> Destiny right now. I feel that. The next new shiny thing. That's kind of an art artist thing, right? But I love Clockwork. Clockwork Angels, Clockwork Lives. And the first one is like, uh, I don't want to say traditional because it's incredibly unique, but it's like a main character and you follow his journey. And the second one, there's still a main character, but it's really a bunch of short stories put together through the eyes of that main character. What's the third book like? How's it structured? Uh, it's, bringing those, it's bringing those two characters together. And the, uh, the idea that, I mean, this Neil had it in the, 
the story in Clockwork Live is called The Percussor's Tale, about a, basically a steam, an inventor and his steampunk drummer. And I got that that audio story that I read, and it's for free if you sign up for my my readers group. But we'll talk about that at the end. But that story where the steampunk drummer like does this fabulous, fantastic uh, concert at the end, and his symphony is calling up like the 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 frozen lands of Ultima Thule to the far north under the auroras, where the source of the quintessence, the element of life, is, and like Neil helped me write that part of it. And he just said, wouldn't it be cool if we sent old Owen Hardy off to see the, the quintessence and the, the auroras in the frozen waste, frozen North. And I said, Oh, but what if he goes with his young grandson who always wants to hear his stories? And then we did the, Oh, what if the watchmaker is dying and he needs to have new quintessence? So Owen Hardy and his grandson have to go up North to, um, to secure some. And that was the whole, the, the, snowball of how the story started but then we wanted to bring in Marinda Peak who's the main character in Clockwork Lives and that whole story ties into their story and and there's just so many cool ideas coming up and we've got a new a new villain in it and um Don Perry the drummer for Jethro Tull was one of my absolute closest friend is one of my closest friends and he was one of Neil's closest friends and uh, Don has, we talk all the time, and he's so excited for this new book that uh, Don Perry, I've decided to name this new villain Peridone after him. <laughs> so there's a there's a little Easter egg in there that Peridone is actually named after Don Perry, who will get a real kick out of it. That Anyways, is so cool. Trivia, everyone. There's our, trivia our questions. Question information. No, and, it's not. And we this, love this listening will to be your fun like, stuff. Yeah, well, I'm I'm thinking that all the all the Rush fan groups are like, damn, why wasn't I listening to it? Because now we just learned all this cool stuff, and and <laughs> the the Rush fans have all been very very supportive, and I'll I'll leak it out when I can. But you guys heard it first. There you go. Woohoo! Look at that. We have privileged information, and the audience is having a ball, and they have lots of questions for you. Like, has any knowledge that you've researched for a book ever gotten you out of a serious jam in your real life? Huh. Actually, yes. Oh, this is a great story. I've only told it like once. And in fact, the only yes. time I told it was in Houston at the at the uh, um, uh, your space center. I was there for Writers of the Future and I was. Oh, yes. Uh, no, this was at Writers of the Future. They had one of their events at the at the Houston Space Center. Um, anyway, long, long story. So I was um, I was reading this story in Analog Magazine about the, a time traveler that went back in time to, to the Pleistocene or something, and um, he gets cornered by a couple of saber-toothed tigers, and they're going to eat him. And so the guy, in his mind, he thinks, well, if I run, they're going to chase me down and kill me. And with the only way I can get out of this is to do the unexpected. And so these two saber-toothed tigers are facing him, and instead he starts yelling and screaming and running toward them. And this freaks out the saber-toothed so much that they kind of bolt because they don't know what's going on. So I read this story in Analog Mag. Now, uh -huh. years later, I'm in Rocky Mountain National Park, and I'm just hiking across this meadow. And big doe comes toward 
me to block me off. And these things are like a horse and a half. I mean, these are big animals. And but I'm not doing anything to don't well, elks don't usually intimidate people. And mm -hmm. so I try to walk around this elk and mm -hmm. the elk like comes closer to me and blocks me off. And then mm -hmm. I go the other direction and I try to get away and this elk blocks me off. And then it starts like pawing the ground like a bull that's about to charge me. Oh, and I'm God. going, I'm out in the middle of a meadow and I'm like, what am I going to do? And this thing can run me down and this is, this is a steamroller and it's ready to go and it's ready to charge. And I remembered that analog story and I thought... <laughs> I got nothing to lose. So I started waving my hands in the air and screaming and I ran toward the elk and the elk like stopped and looked at me and like, what on earth are you doing? And then kind of snorted and, and backed away. And I oh. kind of turned to a different direction and, and went to a different place. Well, it turned out her, her, um, her baby elk was like somewhere else in the meadow. And I was kind of inadvertently walking toward where it was hiding in the shrubs. Oh. So I didn't, but if I hadn't remembered that analog story, I might have been trampled because this thing was ready to mow me down. So, Holy so there, moment. analog science fiction stories. Save your life. <laughs> you just have to read the right stories, people. That's awesome. I love that story. Let's see. We have more for you. We've got. Well, I, still, I, Go wait, I want to. I want to add something. Okay. So one of the things that I that I still don't know is you've all read, and you've seen it on dance, you've seen all this stuff, there's all these people that claim that you can survive out in vacuum without a spacesuit if you just, like, breathe air and jump from one airlock to the next. Or, or um, I mean, you've seen all that many different times where they go, well, I can last a few minutes out in, in the vacuum of space as long as I can get in. They just it did it. It was on Doctor they, Who. It must be real. This, this So I'm going, who tested this how do you and i'm not sure i would take that risk because i had read about it in a science fiction story sometime that <laughs> it doesn't it does sense that you suddenly go from normal pressure to absolute zero pressure it seems to me your eyeballs would explode and your lungs would explode and i, I just don't want to try that for myself i'm just just saying you don't know anyone with an infinite improbability drive <laughs> Well, that might help if I did, but <laughs> eh, not right. So, someday moving on, event. moving on. <laughs> the um, let's see. Next question: You've written in many famous worlds, Dune, Star Wars, DC, so many. We could go on forever. What fictional universe that you haven't written in would you like to get a crack at? Well, nobody's asked me to do anything in My Little Pony, but I'm not so sure. Um, let's see. I think see. you could handle it. You know, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have been asked that a lot and I really I really think about it. But, um, you know, I've done a bunch of Star Wars things and people keep asking me, when am I going to come back to do Star Wars? Well, I did 54 projects for Lucasfilm and I kind of explored all the stuff I wanted to explore. And now it's been 15 years and there's been another, you know, bunch of movies and TV shows and Clone Wars and all kinds of things that... I just, I, I don't know where I would go with it, although I, I do love The Mandalorian quite a lot. Um, I really loved writing, uh, I, I loved writing my Batman Superman book and my, my Last Days of Krypton. I grew up reading DC Comics and I, I love that. 
Uh, we had another one in mind, uh, Batman, Superman, and the first appearance of Wonder Woman in the 50s. Uh, and that the, the DC book line just didn't didn't go anywhere. So that didn't happen. Uh, um, I've written for the X-Files. I've, I've done so many of my favorite thing. Uh, um, right now, I've worked on, there's a new science fiction movie that should come out next year called Persephone. It's sort of like The Martian, only on, uh, on Proxima B, around Alpha Centauri. So it's a survival story. First, first people get to this planet around an alien star. And I'm working working with uh, the writer creative consultant. I've, I've even got story by credit on a script part of it. And I'm being into that right now. And it's really um, firing my imagination. And, and I hope I work with this guy a little bit more. He's, he's really full of good imagination. Um, I think that the thing I'm looking forward to most is whatever the new thing that, that comes up because um, I, I do like trying new stuff and, and exploring new worlds. And uh, I just figured fantasy trilogy that started with Spine of the Dragon and then Venge War just came out. And about three weeks ago, I just delivered the third book. So that fantasy trilogy is done. So see, epic fantasy writers can finish their stories. So <laughs> that's done. I and sense a dig at have... us. Hold on now. Yeah. So, but it's it's done. And it's a trilogy, which means it actually is three books and it's done. And so I've got Clockwork Destiny and I've got the new Dune projects. But, you know, on the horizon, I should be thinking about, well, what is Kevin Anderson going to do next? And and my brain's a little exhausted right now, but it'll it'll come. Let's let's see what the next one will be. And I don't know what it is yet. You'll be inspired somewhere. But actually, I had a question about Wake the Dragon, your fantasy series, the new one. Um, I'm enjoying Venge War yes. uh, immensely, so thank you very much. But it's not little. There's, it's, it's not we. These are fantasy. They, when, when people say epic fantasy, you meant it. So my question is, for these ones, you haven't written, you've written fantasy before. This isn't your first, obviously. But it has. It's been a while since you did like a nice epic fantasy thick series. Why did you decide to do this one? Well, I, I finished the saga of so I the saga of Seven Sons, which is like like the Expanse in Star Wars. It's this big, huge space opera, and then I did some other stuff, and then I came back to that universe and wrote the huge trilogy, the Saga of Shadows, which is uh, the first one was on the the Hugo Ballot, and and that did fine, but I didn't. So that's already. Uh, 10 big novels and I've written two other shorter novels in that universe. And I just didn't want to go, let's do three more books in the same universe. Although there's plenty of room for it. I could do it. I, I really wanted to do, um, I, I wanted to shift gears because I don't like to get bored in what I'm doing. And I, I thought let's, let's do another big epic fantasy. And uh, at the time, like Terry Brooks had announced he was going to retire and stop writing Shannara books. And Terry Goodkind said that he was finished with the uh, sort of truth books and uh, Brandon Sanderson. Well, nothing stops Brandon Sanderson, but <laughs> I, 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 I was thinking that there was kind of room for another big epic fantasy. And I love writing these, these big Cecil B. DeMille kind of dozens of main characters 
characters and storylines. That's what I really like to write. That's kind of my my um, uh, Olympic gold medal stuff. That's my <laughs> my big heavy lifting that I like to do. And I just in, decided until, to do the. Uh, until you're typing in all of Rebecca's edits. Well, see, the problem is, and this gets kind of into the business of publishing in the industry right now. Uh, say back in the 90s or so, that was the thing to do. If you wrote the Robert Jordan big things, the Terry Goodkind big things, the Terry Brooks, the, the doorstop fantasy novels, that was its own thing. And that, that's what everybody loved. And right now, though, just because of economics and pragmatics, big, long, three big, long books is not really the way to do it. The smarter way to do it would be to write 10 shorter books in a big continuing series. Um, take the same story and sort of slice and dice it in, in different ways. And especially with indie publishing, if you can do a, so we, like Spider, the Spider the Dragon books are like 200,000 words each. That, that's a big book. Yeah. Um, if, though, I wrote the same novel in three 70,000-word segments and released them every four months, you would have much more momentum going on your series than having a big publisher release one book every year or so. That's, that's just the way the world has changed now. But traditional publishers don't know how to do a book every three or four months and release them and promote them and things. So that's how the landscape has has changed. So if I were if I were starting from scratch and doing something the saga of seven sons, I would plan on doing it as just this um, so the seven sons books are all also 180,000, 200,000 words. If I would break them up into 70,000 word things that would end up like 20 volumes instead of seven. So you could just keep rolling those out and build up your readership and get your fans clamoring for more. It It's like a weekly TV show instead of one Avengers movie every four years, something like that. Yep. No, nope, makes sense to me, especially with indie publishing, which brings me to my next question, because you teach the um, master's in publishing class or program at Western University and uh, Western Colorado University. And I was so lucky to graduate from that last year. So thank you very much for this program. My question is, uh, why did you decide to teach at Western? Well, I have to correct something. Kelly wasn't lucky to graduate. She did all of her work and she did it well. So it's not like you were lucky to graduate, but um, well, you, were, you were lucky to be in my first lucky to be in the very first cohort of this where um, a lot of, well, I know a lot of people in the audience here uh, have seen me teaching at Superstars Writing Seminar every year. This this is, uh, now I'm getting all sad because tomorrow would have been the launch of this year's Superstars. Tomorrow is when it would, would have gone. Uh, we did that for 12 years and we still do it. I just, that every year when I teach at Superstars and at the end of that, that event, Event, I feel exhausted, but just like walking on air because it's just the mentoring and paying it forward and teaching is just one of the um, the favorite things that I I do. I, I love I love having little Padawans like like Kelly who are going to grow up to be evil Sith lords and and um, that's the plan. I just I I I like teaching. I had I had some very important mentors when I was coming up, so I feel like I kind of owe it to them so that I can. 
I can pass it on. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the altruistic thing. And I, I think you saw it. I do have fun teaching the graduate program. I like it a lot. Uh, but um, in the publishing world, and I, again, I'll get back to business. I hope some of your listeners are interested in the industry and business too. But um, the publishing business has, it was struck by an asteroid like 15 years ago. Like my, when I was writing my Star Wars books in the, in the 90s, it was this giant big burgeoning and I could pick up the phone and say I've got a couple of weeks for you give me a Star Trek book and they'd pay me a lot for it and I would write a Star Trek book and and but all of that stuff just kind of dried up and and probably two-thirds of my very successful colleagues at the time are no longer writers they've thrown in the towel and they're just gone um the the business has become much it's like we all invested heavily in the blockbuster video franchise and suddenly nobody was renting videos anymore. And that, I call it the the black ice in your career, like you're sailing along and suddenly you hit something and you're spinning in a tailspin and you don't know what's going on. So I learned my lesson then that I should never count on one thing being a sole source of income all the time. And I started looking for, like, what else am I good at that I enjoy doing that can be another income stream? Because you never know um, when somebody's going to say, here's a Blu-ray, we're not going to rent VHS tapes anymore. And I'm I'm good at teaching. And I I got offered, the Western Colorado University had, had had a publishing graduate program. But it had died. No signed up for it for years, and they had just sort of put it on a shelf. And they asked me if I, I would uh, revitalize it. And I said, "Well, we're going to be balanced on this. I'm not just going to teach old traditional publishing stuff because where it's at is going to be the the. I still want everybody to learn about traditional publishing because I still think it's a it's a viable career, and it's still have to address things like like ebooks and indie publishing and marketing and all that. So they kind of gave me carte blanche to put together the program that I wanted together. I think it's an advantage that I don't have any training in this. I just sat back and said, well, what do they need to know? I sort of years worth of, of stuff in traditional publishing and indie publishing and I I know I've mentioned this to you several times that in academia, I even though I've had 170 books published and 23 million books in print, I wasn't qualified to teach because I didn't have an MFA. So I had to go back to college and get a creative writing master's to fine arts degree, which cost me like $25,000 and a whole year worth of useless homework to get this degree. <laughs> so when I was putting our, our Western Colorado degree, I said, you know, this isn't going to be an esoteric academic degree. I want the people to come out of mine actually knowing something, and I want them to feel confident that they can um, write their own books, publish their own books, they can sell their own books. And so for our, the projects that they do, you know, for a master's degree, you have to do your master's thesis. And for other creative writing things, you have to write your own novel. Well, for ours, we actually put together and publish an anthology that we got funding for 
draft for it. So all the students, including you, would would read all these slush pile stories and see how really bad so many of them are and pick the good ones and write the contracts and write the rejection letters and copy edit the stories and then design the cover and lay out the interior and then publish the book and market the book and run ads. And, and it's a very cool way of doing it. And um, I guess the the best site there um, that's the easiest thing to remember is like words on fire wordfire.com and there's a whole menu up top that says publishing master's degree so I've, I've got some stuff in there and some links so if you're interested go go there um and i'll always be happy to answer email questions and things because right now i'm over halfway through my second cohort of students um who you know i i Learn you guys that I went, oh, I'll never do that again. So I fixed it and it's all better for the second group. Um, no, actually, I, th I thought our first one turned out pretty well. I was going to say, you rocked with us. I don't know what you needed to improve Open on. for applications. And we're, <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I, I thought mm -hmm. that that for, for a, a beta testing graduate degree program, we came out pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so application right now, and we're already half full. So if you're interested, nice. don't. Don't procrastinate too much. So um, anyway, I, I just, I think it's useful kind of uh, getting around answering your question. When I talk about the, the <laughs> one thing I do need to emphasize is as a writer and as an, I mean, I'm a publisher too. I have Wordfire Press, so we publish other people's books and, and I do public speaking and I do all kinds of things, but um, none of those comes with health insurance. And I'm 58. My wife's a couple years older than I am. We pay out of pocket for our health insurance as, as creatives. And so it's really pretty hard to be able to afford it. Rebecca and I together, we're paying $25,000 a year out of pocket just to cover ourselves in health insurance. And so that's another good reason now that I'm a university employee, I, I'm Get covered under their insurance so thing, but um, there must be some benefit. I love doing it too, so because of that. So, well, let's face it, you have lots and lots of Padawans, so you have been extremely generous in in your mentoring. So, I just want you to know, I and many, many, I'm sure the chat will agree with me, uh, much appreciate it. So, thank you very much. Um, but I will say in the master's program, it's a degree, you know, as part of the um, probably overeducated for no reason population, um, this is a degree I actually am using. So, I mean, out of our nine people, we have, what, seven of them are actually working in publishing at some degree or another. So that's pretty impressive. Wow. And two of them have gone to get another master's degree and create in uh, genre fiction writing. It's you know, I, I like Western Colorado University. It, it's, kind of, it's a small Colorado college, a beautiful campus. Um, now, the degree is almost entirely online. There's supposed to be two weeks in person in summer. COVID kind of screwed that up last year. Mm -hmm. um, but also, it's not that pretentious. I mean, they, they have a genre fiction MFA program. And when I was in college before, when I got my undergrad, um, you know, the fact that you even mentioned that you wrote science fiction in an English department would kind of get you sneered at. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I think they're much more uh, mm -hmm. kind of laid back and practical. They have a screenwriting 
uh, program and they have nature writing and poetry. And so it's, I just kind of like it. I like, I like the people. It's not, and I'm, anybody who knows me knows that I'm, I'm not real big on, on, uh, bureaucracy and red tape and filling out the forms and, and <laughs> attending meetings and things. I just want to leave me alone and let me do my stuff. So, uh, they kind of leave me alone and let me do my stuff and it's turned out well so far. It's pretty awesome. So, and then if they want, I think you broke up when you said, you said if they want more information, where do they go? Well, my, my website, wordfire.com, I've got a whole section on it called publishing master's degree. And there's just links and stuff there. Cause if, if I try to okay. spill out a long URL, nobody's going to remember it, but no, no, wordfire.com wordfire and there's other stuff there. Perfect. 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 Let's see. We have another question in the audience. Um, let's see. Being a futurist of sorts, how do you think writers will find a way to make the market work for them again? So what do you see in the future? Well, you know, there's always going to be a need for storytelling. what the format is, whether it's printed printed books on paper or radio plays, everybody's still going to want to read good stuff. However, you know, there were a lot of people who wrote those radio plays in the 30s. They didn't stop being writers because people stopped listening to radio plays. They either went to work at Hollywood or they wrote books or or whatever it is that they did. So I think you need to always improve your craft as a storyteller and be flexible. I mean, just remember Blockbuster Video, that the, the vehicle, the VHS tape might change. But then I, I don't know how many people remember having a subscription to Netflix, but we used to have the mail DVDs to our mailbox. You could get any DVD in your mailbox and you'd watch it and you'd put it in the return envelope and mail it back and then you'd get another one a couple of days later. And you know, you gotta you gotta think of these digital entertainment companies that I'd be terrified to be in their shoes because no matter what I'm doing, it's gonna be outdated two years from now. And uh, I mean there's a big shakeup with HBO Max and Brothers where they just said, Well, movie theaters are closed, we're just gonna drop Wonder Woman 1980 and on everybody who had a everybody who has a $12 a month subscription to HBO Max gets Wonder Woman free when you would have to pay 30 bucks to take your your wife and kids out to see the movie or mm -hmm. more. So I, I mean that really changed everything just a couple of months ago when Rebecca and I watched it on Christmas Day and that movie changed our lives not because it was a brilliant movie but we we realized Every year we would go with the extended family because they're all visiting at Christmas and we would we would spend an hour trying to figure out which movie we wanted to see and which theater it was playing at and what time the showing was. And then we'd all pile into four different cars and we drive there and we try to um, find parking spots and then you'd have to wait in line to get your ticket. And then once you got in there, there was never 10 seats together because we had 10 people and we'd all separate out and you'd have to pay through the nose to buy 
the movie tickets, your popcorn, your sodas, everything else. And then you're not all that comfortable sitting in a movie theater anyway. And, and you can't have a beer and you sitting and you go home and it's just it's it's a half hour drive there, a half hour drive home. It's just all this. And then. Rebecca and I just were, we, we were lounging on our bed, looking at our big screen TV and just said, hey, let's watch Wonder, Wonder Woman right now. And we pushed play and it started when we wanted it to. I could have a beer. We could have the cats with us. You could pause it to go to the bathroom if you wanted to. And you could be sitting in your sweatpants and your fuzzy socks and just be comfortable. And I thought, I never want to go to a movie theater again. <laughs> well, I will, but, but still, I mean, that whole that whole perspective was just changed how I viewed movies. Period. Yep, and I can see that. I, I don't know that it's for the for the book, but it, it's it's changing, and you can't be the old get up my long guy and say I don't like it the way it changed. I liked my Betamax tapes, and I liked my laser discs, and well, good for you, but that ain't the way it is. Um, right. Anyway, that was kind of a long, a long rant, but but that's the answer is that it's gonna now is different from what it was a year ago, from and what it was ten years ago, and you can. It used to be that once you figured out how to be a professional author, as I did, nineteen eighty eight was my book pub success. And in the 90s, I had all these bestsellers. I had Star Wars books. I had Star Trek. I had movie tie-ins. And I just didn't stop. Well, there I am. I'm set now. Nothing's ever going to change. I'm just going to keep writing my own books. I'm going to write a movie tie-in book whenever I need to. And, and I'm going to Star Wars books. Fast forward to when I retire. But no, that lasted maybe 10 years when suddenly all that just like, oh, well, that doesn't work anymore. And those bookstores closed and Borders bookstore chain went out of business and ebooks appeared and indie authors showed up. And publishing houses are now going to be down to the big four publishing houses where there were like 15. You just have to be adaptable and, mm-hmm. and change and keep learning and keep growing. That's perfect. That's great advice. Keep dancing. Keep dancing. If you want to do something creative for a living, you're going to have to keep dancing. So awesome. You did awesome. We're, we're about out of time. So I just want to ask um, the one question we've asked all the authors. So it's really important. So I hope you're ready for this one. What is your favorite flavor of ice cream? Let's see. I love butter brickle. Ooh. And and I let's see mint chocolate chip is good, but Rebecca doesn't like pepper. So if I have it, I'll just go without kisses for a while if I need to. Um, but you don't have to share you know, it the, either. The thing There's is, benefits. I I'm more. That's true. Um, I like trying different things, um, but I much prefer beer to ice cream i'm not really a sweet person i'm much more of a savory person so having beer with ice cream is not really a combination most times well unless it's like you know a really good stout right you have a float then well that will work yes (laughs) we can we can marry the two loves um so finally uh where can fans find you and your work okay 
Um, like we said before, wordfire.com is kind of my main site. And wordfirepress.com is my publishing site with all of the, the new books that we're releasing and all the authors and stuff. Um, on Facebook, if you just look up the official Kevin J. Anderson page, uh, you'll find me. Um, Facebook is because I will have 5,000 friends and then they'll change the terms on your fan page or fan whatever they are. And so I've just got them all up there and you'll find one. Um, Twitter, it's the word the with my initials. So it's at the KJA. 14.9K followers. So if uh, like 10 people tonight all follow me on Twitter, I'm going to go over 15,000. So um, nice. then I think I get an award nice. or something. Hooray. Anyway, <laughs> and and again, on wordfire.com, I've got more information on the, the master's degree program, if any ambitious publisher wants to join. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us, Kevin. So everyone, as you read his books and love them, please leave him a review. It's the present that you can give every author. And also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review as well, wherever you get podcasts. And if you are missing the live version, trust me, you want to come Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. Central, so you can ask your own questions. So thank you very much. Good night. We'll see you next week when we have uh, Kevin Eikenberry.